that. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this Monday edition of the Logan Blackman Show. I am, of course, your host, Logan underscore Blackman. We are here on the Basement Podcast, and I hope you all are enjoying your Monday, and I hope you all enjoyed your weekend, because I sure did. Let's just recap what Logan did this weekend, because it was, it was a fun one. It was a pretty fun, exciting weekend. So on Friday, yes, we are counting Friday as the weekend, because if after 5 on Friday, I'm counting as the weekend. So Friday at 5.30, one of my childhood friends, Isaac, got married. It was very exciting, very exciting day. Me and our group of childhood friends were the ushers of the wedding. And it was a good wedding. It was fun. The reception was fun. Everything was fun. It was just a good day celebrating love and marriage and all that stuff. Then afterwards, we tried to watch Megaconda. And, like, we have a history of watching bad movies. We have a very long history long and prestigious history of watching terrible movies but this one was not was terrible but not fun to watch like the other terrible movies we've watched like Velocipaster, Birdemic, The Room those are fun movies to watch but this one it was just hard to watch it wasn't funny it wasn't good because like in the bad movies that you see every once in a while like the Birdemics of the world or Cowboys vs. Dinosaurs or stuff like that, you expect there to be some little funny parts in the movie, whether it's on purpose or whether it's completely accidental. You still expect there to be some ha-ha and hee-hee moments throughout the course of the movie. This one did not have that, so we stopped watching it after about a half hour and just started watching memes on YouTube, essentially. Then we go to Saturday, and it's a fun day Saturday. We had plans to go up to Ledges, and I texted the group chat at 10. No one responded until about 2, saying we're already out here, which was great. Saturday was just a frustrating day in general because no one knows how to plan anything. Three of them are my roommates up at UNI, two of them former roommates. It was a very frustrating day because they were not helping me, Preston, or Christian out at all. And it was just a very annoying day. There was never a a semblance of, oh, sorry, we messed up, or sorry, we didn't get back to you, or sorry about this, that, or the other thing. It was just, well, you're here now. That was very frustrating. So we we hung around on Saturday, and until about 9, it was one of the most frustrating days I've had in a very, very long time. Because after 9, we grilled hot dogs on a fire and just hung out, and it was pretty fun. Then after that, went back to Preston's apartment, Hung out with him and his roommates and some of our other friends there. And it was just a fun cap off to the night. And then Sunday, me, Preston, Noah, and Chris go play some mini golf over by Blank Park Zoo. And yeah, um, Chris won. So congratulations to Chris. He got a minor, he got a 53, which is two under par, one under par for that course. I think it's a par is 54. He got a 53 plus his mulligan. And so he won. Preston came second with a 55. Noah came third with a 60, and I came last with a 61. Yeah, I got, but I got a hole in one at one point in the game, so I will take my 61 and just hold on to the fact that I got a hole in one and take that to the mother freaking bank. I don't really care. But congratulations to Chris on winning the Blank Park Zoo Masters. We will have another game coming up soon. It's the first mini golf game of the summer, so we're, we were all rusty. Except for Chris, because he shot one under par. So he was very impressive 
that day and he was taking pictures so go follow chris on instagram so you can go see all the pictures from that day and also some of the other pictures chris takes from just around the just the state of iowa area i guess longboarding skateboarding now mini golf so go check out his instagram if you feel the need to because it was a fun day it was just an overall fun weekend and then of course after we were done on sunday we go back to my house Preston, Noah, and I, Chris, left, and we just have a chat. We just talk outside for about an hour and a half, it felt like. And then after that, it's about 10.30. Noah and I go inside right after Preston left and watch Long Gone Summer. Noah, sadly, is a lifelong Cardinals fan. And it's questionable how people allow that stuff to happen to their children, especially when they're not from Missouri or around those areas. Why you would dare allow your child to be a St. Louis Cardinals fan or a Minnesota Wild fan or stuff like that. Like my roommate from William Penn, Brett Snyder, St. Louis Blues fan. Why do you have to be that, Brett? Alex Crehan, the greatest NAIA quarterback of all time, is a St. Louis Blues fan. Why do you got to be St. Louis Blues fans? Why can't you like a cool team like the Chicago Blackhawks who are taking home the Stanley Cup this year as a 12 seed? squeaking into the playoffs we'll get past the oilers we'll get past the stars and we'll go to the freaking stanley cup final baby and we'll hoist lord stanley for the fourth time in this decade wait wait is this still technically the decade 2010 to 2020 that's the decade right or is it 2019 yet? i don't know we'll count as forks it sounds cooler than the first one of the decade we're starting it off strong seven stanley cups is what we're going for and we're going to get it this year with our aging roster after trading away Robin Lanier and Eric Gustafson, who was our best goalie and our best defender of the season when we were not that far out of the original playoff bracket before this whole COVID-19 thing took the United States by storm and we canceled all sports or postponed all sports. But yeah, you'd hate, you hate to see your kids like that. Why would you raise your kids to be that? Great people. Great people. Some of my best friends. But why do you rate, how do you allow your child, the, your child, the thing, the person, the whatever you want to call it, the thing close, closest to your heart, if you're a parent, and allow them to like such evil and terrible teams? I don't know how you could do that to yourself. Cardinals fans, I guess I can understand that a little bit more because I guess they've had some success. I think they've won the third most World Series. Second or third most World Series in the MLB. I think they have 13 or something like that. It's second or third. The Yankees are first. Everybody knows that. But who's second? It's either the Cardinals or someone. I can't even think who's second. So I'm guessing it's the Cardinals at second. But I hate the Cardinals. I hate the Cardinals with a burning passion. And we talked about this a few days ago. About how I don't really have a lot of hate for a lot of things in this world. But the Cardinals are number one on the most hated list according to logan blackman i hate the st louis cardinals if i lost a bet and the bet was to wear a cardinal shirt i don't know if i could do that bet i don't think i could handle it like i made a bet with one of my friends in high school when iowa and nebraska were playing it was when this series first kind of kicked off and it was the winner or the loser i guess has to wear the winning team's shirt or whatever and his name's Kenton. Kenton is about six foot six, six seven, maybe. I was barely six foot in high school. 
maybe even less than that. I was probably like 5'10 when I was around this time. And I got Ken when the Hawkeyes won. Um, when Armstrong threw, I think, four interceptions in the game. Just an amazing performance from him. I brought a sweatshirt to school. It's a little different than a shirt because sweatshirt, you can tell it's a little short for a person because the sleeves are riding halfway up a person's arm. And the bet was you had to wear that shirt or sweatshirt or jersey for whatever for the entirety of the school day. It was awesome. And I saw Kenton a lot throughout the day of uh, like going around the commons and stuff and laugh every time I saw him. It was really funny to see. Why do you allow your kids to wear that stuff? Why do you allow your kids to like these garbage teams? And Noah, I'm sorry you're a Cardinals fan. It's a shame. It's a damn shame. I'm sorry about that, Noah. But we watched, being Cubs and Cardinals fans, because I am a lifelong Cubs fan, family from Chicago, got the Iowa Cubs, went to Iowa Iowa Cubs games on a, a daily basis when I was younger, worked for the Iowa Cubs, so I've the Cubs out of all my sports teams, I have loved the Cubs longer than any of my other sports teams throughout my life. I've suffered a lot being a Cubs fan, especially a lot of that suffrage coming at the hands of the St. Louis Cardinals. Painful. And this documentary, Long Gone Summer, gave a little brief moment in history, especially around this time in the 90s and the early 2000s, of where the Cubs were actually a little tiny bit better than the Cardinals. During that 98 season with the home run record on the line, Roger Maris' 61 home runs in a season record is on the line. And it's going up between Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. Cubs versus Cardinals, the most hated, one of, well, not the most hated rivalry because that's Yankees-Red Sox, but one of the most hated rivalries in baseball, if not sports. Cubs and Cardinals. Chris Bryant re reignited the flame I guess you could say by calling St. Louis boring a few years ago and Cardinals fans and Cardinals players alike took that to heart even though it was on a joking show in a joking matter but you know what they ain't not there's not a lot to do down there so if they hear something mentioned about them it's like oh my god we got it's like Iowa every time Iowans hear something like if a movie or a tv show mentions the state of Iowa everyone's like oh my god we're famous that's how it always was in elementary school middle school high school even now like st louis if anybody talks about st louis oh my god we actually made it boring down there <laughs> and chris bryant fully ignited the flame reignited the flames you see people like carpenter and yadi molina coming out and saying these things and some cardinals pitchers that i never heard of coming up and saying things the only reason i say it because i can't remember who the pitcher was that said it i know there was a pitcher that said something But just Cubs and Cardinals, fans, players, organizations alike do not like each other. But in this documentary, you saw Sammy Sosa, Chicago Cub legend, Mark McGuire, Cardinals legend, like being friends, like hugging each other, putting their arms around each other, giving fist bumps, hugging, like celebrating with each other. Would you see that today? No. I think the only person that could break the divide between the Cubs and Cardinals is Dexter Fowler. I don't think Jason Hayward could, even though he's played on both teams. I think Dexter Fowler is the only one that could do that because of the connections he made with the Chicago Cubs when he won the World Series in 2016 as the leadoff hitter. As you go, we go, Joe Madden used to say to Dexter Fowler. Everybody loves Dexter Fowler. So I think he's the only one that could honestly 
go across the divide and try to be like the communicator between the two franchises. Because I don't think they really have a lot of good things to say about each other, especially now. I think he could be that, that voice of reason between the two franchises. But other than that, I don't see that happening. Cubs and Cardinals, as we said, organizations, teams, players alike, all hate each other. It's the fabric of the United States of America. Cubs and Cardinals absolutely despising each other. And it was weird, Noah and I were talking about this last night, when seeing the likes of Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire hugging it out, doing press conferences together, laughing with each other, hugging each other, doing handshakes with one another. It's like, man, I'm not a huge fan of this. This is making me feel uncomfortable. But there was just, it was such a cool thing to see that, not that the fact that they were doing all that, but how these two players from the same division, hated rivals, are competing to see who's the home run king, to set a, the, the major league home run record, beating 61 home runs. And Mark McGuire got the record first, got to 62 home runs, playing the Chicago Cubs. You couldn't have written it better, any a better story if you tried. Sammy Sosa eventually got to 66 home runs, one above Mark McGuire. But after that, Sammy Sosa stopped hitting home runs, and Mark McGuire cranked out five more to get to 70 home runs on the season, which was an MLB record until Barry Bonds came and beat it a few years later with the San Francisco Giants. And those three players all have one thing in common. No, it's not the fact that they're baseball players. That's obvious. No, it's not the fact that they could hit home runs. Because, again, that's obvious. The thing that they have in common is the fact that they were the poster boys, essentially, of the steroid era in the MLB. You got those three. You get throwing Alex Rodriguez, Manny Ramirez, Gary Sheffield. Like, you got all these players that get talked about with the steroid era. Arguably the most exciting time in Major League Baseball history. With teams hitting home runs and driving in runs at a historic pace that had never been seen before. But now, with that excitement going in with Major League Baseball, there was this argument of their records should not stand. Because you've got these players back in the 40s and 50s and 60s even up until the 80s, that were getting all these records without using steroids, without using performance-enhancing drugs and all that kind of stuff. And they were getting all these home runs, like Roger Maris, 61 home runs. Beat Babe Ruth. Even his record was, quote-unquote, not le- uh, not legitimate because he played more games than Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth had 60 home runs. That was the record. Maris beat it, and he played seven more games, I think. Seven? Was it seven more games? I think seven. I can't remember. I no. It was eight more games, so I think Babe Ruth played 154 and got 60. And they said at the time, until someone hits that number in 154 games, then Babe Ruth's record will still stand, even though, numbers-wise, Roger Maris's was more. Baseball is a weird thing with records, and like all these little things with their records are so important with everything, especially numbers from the steroid So it will divide opinions on if these guys are Hall of Fame worthy, like Barry Bonds, like Alex Rodriguez, Manny Ramirez, uh, Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, are these guys Hall of Famers? Because they hold numerous records in the MLB. We watched the whole doc- two-hour documentary last night about Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa beating Roger Maris's record with 70 and 66 home runs. But are they Hall of Famers? Again, 
This is something that divides opinions across America, across generations. Because you got the people in the Baseball Writers Association who vote the people into the Hall of Fame will never vote these guys into the Hall of Fame. Never, ever, ever will they vote these guys in the Hall of Fame. There, in the MLB Hall of Fame history, there's been one unanimous first ballot Hall of Famer. That's Mariano Rivera. Other than that, there is nobody throughout the history of Major League Baseball. There is one. Major League Baseball is the most historic fran- historic league in maybe the world. It's definitely in America, but in the world, maybe. So many legendary figures dating back to the early 1900s. Dating back to the late 1800s to some teams. And there's been one unanimous first ballot Hall of Famer, and that is Mariano Rivera. That is absolutely crazy to think about. So that's how strict, if he's the first and only unanimous first ballot Hall of Famer, do you really think there's a chance in hell that Sosa, McGuire, Rodriguez, and all those guys, Bonds, get in the Hall of Fame? Probably not. Their records will stand, but there's always going to be that little asterisk next to those records that they hold. Like ESPN, I think, oh, they quoted a Trevor Bauer tweet. I think it was Trevor Bauer. Maybe it was someone else. Yeah, it was Trevor Bauer. It says Barry Bonds is a Hall of Famer. Barry Bonds throughout his career is 762 home runs, seven-time MVP, 14-time All-Star, eight-time Gold Glove. And then you look at the first eight years of his major league career before he took the steroids, a two eighty three batting average, three MVPs, four gold gloves, three silver sluggers. Like, I don't know. And someone in the comments of this tweet goes, are you really asking if a seven-time MVP is a Hall of Famer? And then someone goes, Roids will make you question him. And it's true. Different people hold different things to Major League Baseball in regards to players. With these players of the steroid era, which was the late 90s to the early 2000s, even probably the mid-2000s if we're really talking like that. With the whole, like, it's hard to judge. Because their numbers are legendary. But their numbers are not legitimate. Now, comparing this scandal, the steroid scandal, again, the most exciting time in Major League Baseball history, arguably, it's not the same as the sign-stealing scandal, which the Astros, the Red Sox, and now the New York Yankees, which apparently are even in a bigger sign-stealing scandal than the two teams I mentioned before. But I need to do more research on that before I can give a full opinion on the matter. But that's worse because these guys, though they're taking steroids, there have been guys that have taken steroids and just not done anything. Bonifacio played for the Kansas City Royals a few years ago. He was nothing. He had nothing. Got banned for steroids. So you still have to hit the ball. It's a lot easier to know where these guys are pitching the ball, what pitch it is, all that kind of stuff, than taking steroids and you're going to get a giant swing and a miss. And all that kind of stuff. The science skill scandal is way worse than the steroid era. And that's what makes it a little bit of a difficult question on if these steroid guys are going in the Hall of Fame. Because then if you hold them accountable for that, you cannot put the likes of Altuve, Bregman into the Hall of Fame 
because that scandal, in my opinion, and I think the vast majority of people's opinions, that's worse than the steroid era. And you got people like Tony LaRussa, who coached both Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco, that were both involved in the steroid era, but he's in the Hall of Fame. So we got to look at this as it's they're only punishing the players. They're not punishing the organizations. They're not punishing the other players on the team. They're not punishing the managers. It's just the players, even though everybody knew about it, essentially. Even Bud Selig at the time. Would, they brought this up at the end of the documentary, which I thought it was stupid that they only talked 15 minutes about the steroid era and about Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa using steroids. That's just very, I don't know. Because if you didn't know that happened, which I don't know a lot of people out there that didn't know this happened, but if you didn't know, you would have thought, man, these guys are awesome. And then the little brief 15 minutes of, oh yeah, they use steroids. Like Selick, he probably knew about it. He's the commissioner of the entire league. There's no way he didn't know about it, but he didn't say anything. Why? Because again, baseball numbers, especially in the 90s, early 90s, were terrible up into this point they had a strike there was not a lot of people going to games and then they have this boom in home runs from the likes of mcguire and sosa and barry bonds and alex rodriguez manny ramirez so he's not gonna say anything is it bad like yeah it's the integrity of the game sure that's important but numbers man numbers 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 We'll punish them later. There was no really rules or regulations at the time saying that this is illegal. They wrote it after the fact. This is illegal. Punishing the players like, we didn't know it was illegal. It wasn't illegal at the time. But it's illegal now, so we're punishing the players for it. Even though there's a lot of other people involved in this whole situation, this whole scandal, if you want to call it that. But do Barry Bonds, Sosa, McGuire, Rodriguez, Ramirez, and a lot of other players like that, do they deserve to be in the Hall of Fame? Again, you'd probably go 50-50 if you pulled the vast majority of people in America. If you went to a ballpark, whenever fans are going to be allowed at ballparks, if the MLB ever decides it wants to come back, if you pulled those people that were at the games, they would pro- you'd probably get a 50-50 split. The older generation going, no, that shouldn't be allowed with the more people in their 30s, even their 20s, saying, yeah, they deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. Look at their numbers. And then you'll get the other argument of they're not legitimate numbers. Mark McGuire, he got inducted in the Cardinals Hall of Fame. He only played four and a half years there. Sammy Sosa was on the Cubs for a while. I think 12 years. Was the number of years he played for the Cubs? Maybe a little less than that. But Sammy Sosa hasn't even been allowed at Wrigley in years. And the Cubs social media team, the Twitter account and Instagram account, posted a video of Sammy Sosa during the 98 season. So, are we slowly but surely getting Sammy Sosa back to the city of Chicago, back to Wrigley Field, and retiring his number? Because... If we look at the numbers, if we do if we do a blind look at the numbers and don't go any deeper than just the numbers, you look at what Sammy Sosa did in a Cubs uniform. He's one of the greatest Chicago Cubs of all time, undoubtedly, unquestionably, one of the greatest Cubs of all time. And when you see these players 
these legendary players, then you don't see them retire their number. You see them like honor the number. Like the Bills with OJ Simpson, they didn't retire the number until this year. They're retiring OJ's number this year. But it was on like the reserved list or something. Like Andre Reed's number 83. It's on a reserved list. Now there's other teams like that, but I just know the Bills won. So that's like players that they won't wear those numbers. Because they're reserved. But OJ's is now retired. But the Cubs didn't even reserve Sammy's number. It's just like he's never there. So when you a player, people like me, my age, I'm even a little older, look at the number 21 and instantly think, Sammy Sosa. But here's the players that have worn this jersey since Sosa left. Jason Marquis, Milton Bradley, Tyler Colvin, Joe Mather, Scott Hairston, Junior Lake, Tommy Hunter, Mark Zagunis, Tyler Chatwood, and Tony Kemp. First off, Milton Bradley is my least favorite Cubs player of all time. Milton Bradley did nothing good in his time in Chicago. I will never forget watching this when I was a little, I was a wee whippersnapper of on the second out of the inning, Milton Bradley catched the ball. I think he was playing right field and tossed it out to center, tossed it out in the crowd. Second out. Dude had no idea what was going on about 90% of the time he was playing. Tyler Colvin was supposed to be the next big thing. I remember watching him in Iowa. Everybody thought he was going to be the next big thing. Trash. Then he went to the Rockies, and I don't know what he did did there. Junior Lake, good lord. The hype surrounding Junior Lake was insane. Junior Lake is one of my favorite, (laughs) least, like, out of the, the talented players the Cubs have had. And there's not a lot, and especially in my lifetime. Junior Lake was one of my favorites. Junior Lake was, according to a lot of people, was supposed to take over the shortstop position. But Starlin Castro wasn't slowing down. Starlin Castro was the best player on the team by a long shot at that point in time. Like the Jay Cutler of baseball is what I've called him with my friend Spencer. He had all the talent in the world. He just showed he could care less. I still love Starlin Castro. Like everybody loves Jay Cutler now. I'm upset that Starlin Castro didn't get a World Series ring. I thought they should have kept him over Aston Russell. But the hype around Aston Russell after coming from the A's was too much. But Junior Lake, after he couldn't beat out Strong Cash, moved to left field, had a really good first year. Like, first good half season of his first year in the baseball. My first Chicago Cubs game I ever went to was the Chicago Cubs versus the L.A. Dodgers. Wrigley Field's a night game. Beautiful night for baseball. My Uncle Fred, he lives right down the street from Wrigley. He lives on West Kyler, which is right down the street. It's either just Kyler or West Kyler. I can't remember. But it's right down the street from Wrigley. So it's walking distance. My dad and I walked to the games. Been to three Chicago Cubs games in my life. And Junior Lake and Anthony Rizzo, though the Cubs lost, this was Yasiel Puig's first season in the majors. And Junior Lake and Anthony Rizzo, two of my favorite players on the team, it was those two and Starlin Castro, were my favorite players, both smacked two home runs. Rizzo and Junior Lake smacked two home runs. That was awesome. I loved that. That was my, like... Oh my God, this is the best game ever. Chris Russin was a starting pitcher. Like, this was a bad Cubs team. And Junior Lake just was fun to watch for that first season he was there. Then completely fell apart. It was like Aris Mendy Alcantara. Like, he was awesome in those first, like, few games with the Cubs. It's like, oh, here's our future center fielder and leadoff hitter. Utility player. He sucked. 
post his first season in Chicago. Sucked. He made people kind of forget about Javier Baez for like a brief second because he was playing very, very well at second base and center field and shortstop. He was playing all over the place. He made people forget about Baez for that brief moment in history, which is kind of hard to believe, but it's true. And then he got the likes of Mark Zagunis, who was just a decent Iowa Cubs player. No more, no less. Tyler Chatwood. I do not like Tyler Chatwood, basically because of his contract. And Tony Kemp, I mean, good speed, but what else did he really provide other than utility? I mean, he switched his number to number five, I think, or he came switched the other way around or something. But, yeah, the disrespect to Sammy Sosa. Now, the Ricketts family, the owners of the Chicago Cubs, have come out and said, like, all he needs to do is apologize for using steroids or say he used steroids. And Sammy, at the end of this documentary, was like, why am I having to say sorry for this? Why am I the the scapegoat for this? It's true. Sammy Sosa doesn't really say anything. Sammy Sosa is one of the greatest Cubs players of a very bad period of Cubs baseball. Their early 2000s, that was a brief blip of competent Cubs baseball. That was an exciting time in my life when the Cubs were the best team in baseball and then all hope would be dashed away when they got swept by the Diamondbacks and Dodgers. But at that brief moment in time, the Cubs were awesome. Sammy Sosa, Alex Gonzalez, Mark Pryor, Kerry Wood, Moises Alou. Uh, you had some good Cubs players. And they were just always suck in the playoffs. Just simple as that. But he is one of the, if not the greatest Cubs player of that really bad period of Cubs baseball, especially in the 90s. The Cubs in the 98 season won 90 games, made the playoffs. The next year, my memory is a little fuzzy on this. It was either 60 or 65 games. They dropped 30 games in a season. Sammy Sosa hit 66 home runs in 98, hit 60 the next year, and they still finished with 60, 65 wins. That's how bad the Cubs were at this time. So when Sammy Sosa was smashing in dingers like that, that was awesome. And that was awesome because the Cardinals were also not that good. (laughs) They were not that talented either other than Mark McGuire. Cubs had some players that had some talent on those teams, like Kerry Wood, Mark Grace, uh, to mention some players on those teams, along with Sammy Sosa. Two cult heroes, actually three cult heroes of Chicago Cubs baseball. But Sammy, we need him back in Chicago. We need him back in Chicago. And I know this is basically just a, a Sammy Sosa side of the documentary, but... That's okay, because they didn't really do a lot with Sammy Sosa in this documentary, which was very frustrating for me for somebody whose first baseball jersey and first favorite baseball player was Sammy Sosa. I wanted more Sammy in this documentary. I love watching Sammy Sosa. Sammy Sosa highlights are some of the best highlights you can watch. This was a Mark McGuire documentary, essentially. Like, with the stuff they did when Mark McGuire hit 62... Like, the celebration, all the dramatic music and all that stuff. They did absolutely nothing for when Sammy Sosa hit home run 66. Passing Mark McGuire. It was just a Mark McGuire documentary, essentially, with Sammy Sosa featured in there. The storytelling was a little off in this. 
makes us look back and miss the last dance a little bit. But it's ESPN's 30 for 30, so they're like, ah, we can do whatever, we'll get this. It was just a Mark McGuire documentary, essentially. We started off with Mark McGuire going from high school, always oh, a pitcher, goes to USC, oh, you switch to first base, I want you to smack dingers all the time. Goes to USC, goes to the A's, rookie of the year, all of that stuff. We go through all the stories, the injuries, the sick flow that he had, the mullet he had. Oh, my goodness. Didn't get talked about that much, but that mullet was sick when he had that heel problem. He had plantar fasciitis, I think. We heard about that stuff. Then we heard about the trade of the Cardinals and the Cardinals going, well, we didn't know what we were going to give up for you because you don't want to give up your entire farm system for a rent-a-player. Yeah. Should have taught the Cubs something before they traded for Aroldis Chapman. I know that he got a World Series. I love Aroldis Chapman for that. But you traded away our best players for Aroldis Chapman just to get him for a few months. I know he got a World Series. I love him for that. But if he's not going to stay past that season, why did you give up Gliber Torres? The position of need on the Chicago Cubs at this point in time is second base. You know what position Gliber Torres plays? Second base or shortstop, whichever one you want. He's one of the best middle infielders in baseball. He just gave him up for nothing. And he's partnering. This is kind of funny. A little random point. He's partnering former Chicago Cub DJ LeMahieu. So two players the Cubs had in their farm system and traded away. Now are both playing middle infield for the best team in Major League Baseball. Awesome. It's fantastic to watch. So the Cardinals didn't know what they would do when they got McGuire. McGuire goes in, struggles his first half season in St. Louis, and then you start seeing upgrades and start seeing him improve his play as he spent more time in St. Louis. They had the the standing ovation thing with Mark McGuire there. Like, we did all of that. We went through the injuries, went through his college, we went through high school, the position change, going through from Oakland to St. Louis – for Sammy Sosa, it was, yeah, he was on the Rangers at one point, and then he wound up in the Cubs. And then we found out he's a shoe shine boy. Like, it was like five minutes of Sammy Sosa, like, po- pre-Chicago Cubs. The first half of the documentary was all Mark McGuire, essentially. I don't care about Mark McGuire. And if we're going to talk about Mark McGuire and the Oakland Athletics, why are we not even mention, or why was he not even, uh, I guess they're not, on, I guess, well, are they not on good terms? I don't think they're on good terms. But Jose Canseco, why was he not involved in this? I don't think they're on good terms, though. So that's probably why they didn't do this. But I wanted to see Jose. Like, I am Jose. They call me Jose. And I'm Mark. The Lonely Island thing. You should watch that. It's on Netflix. It's pretty good. It's like a Jose Canseco, Mark McGuire musical thing. And he wasn't in it. The person that was also competing with these two. Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire for the home runs. Ken Griffey Jr., in my opinion, argue, well, I, okay, I got to figure out how I want to word this. When we're talking about, like, lifetime as a baseball player, I think Ken Griffey Jr., in their entire, not same greatest major league player of all time, he has to be talked about as one of the greatest players of all time. He is, when he came out of high school, he got drafted first overall by the Seattle Mariners. He goes on to have the greatest swing of Major League Baseball history. He goes on to be the face of baseball. My uncle, who's not even a baseball fan, had his room when he was younger painted blue and silver because of the Seattle Mariners and Ken Griffey Jr. 
He's a Des Moines, Iowa kid. He had never been to Seattle before. And then Ken Griffey Jr. becomes the first number one overall pick to get inducted first ballot Hall of Famer. First one ever. In my opinion, if we're going to have someone that goes in the Baseball Hall of Fame unanimously, if we had to choose someone, like, even in recent history, before Mariano Rivera, would have been Ken Griffey Jr. I know he didn't get any World Series championships, but you can point that to the fact that on the teams he played on. The Saint, the Seattle Mariners are the only team who don't have a major league, uh, World Series championship. And the Cincinnati Reds. Like, two teams that at the time were not really competing for silverware. The Mariners just screwed around. You had Randy Johnson, Alex Rodriguez, and Ken Griffey Jr. Didn't get anything out of those guys. It is ridiculous. But, that's beside, but he should have been in there at least once. Those two were the best home run hitters. <coughs> Ken Griffey Jr. was the face of baseball. That was his league. Like the Mike Trout of today, of back then. The face of Major League Baseball, but on a just bad team. He's not going to lead the league in home runs, but he's going to lead the league in everything else. He'll be up there. He'll be top five home run hitter. He should have been in the documentary. And then with, with all the random Cardinals players we had in there, why did we not have Mark Grace, one of the biggest cult heroes in Chicago Cubs history, at least make an appearance in the documentary? He shared the right side of the field with Sammy Sosa. Sammy Sosa and right, Mark Grace, at first, we had Kerry Wood, another cult hero, Chicago Cubs history. But Mark Grace, we have to put Mark Grace in that documentary. We're going to put some of the random Cardinals players they threw in there. Why not Mark Grace? Every Cubs fan and their mom loves Mark Grace. Even their grandmas love Mark Grace. Why was he not even mentioned in the documentary? Shared the right side of the field with Sammy Sosa. I think they followed each other in the batting order. Mark Grace, I'm disappointed he wasn't in there. He had to be there. But it makes sense because it was pretty much a Mark McGuire documentary. Like, the fact they did, they made little noise about when Sammy Sosa hit 66 and put it all on, like, Mark McGuire, oh no. Sammy Sosa passed me in the home run list. Oh no. I'm not going to let him do that. Like, all the dramatic music about Mark McGuire... Again, he broke the record, but Sammy Sosa, at a time, was the record holder. Should have had him a little bit more in there. Sammy Sosa is charisma personified. Everybody loves Sammy Sosa. Not everybody loves Mark McGuire. Everybody loves Sammy Sosa. I would have loved to have Sammy. I would have loved to have Sammy Sosa more involved in the documentary. And then this thing, it's the last thing I'm going to talk about of this documentary, was the end. The very end. The $3 million baseball. I wish I just had, at, just have at any point in my life that F you money. Like, F you. I'm buying a $3 million baseball. $3 million for a baseball? $3 million. I have baseballs upstairs. I get it was Mark McGuire's baseball. I, that's why it was $3 million. But It's a baseball. <laughs> you can buy that for $5 at Shields. $3 million. You can buy one place in a case and claim it's Mark McGuire's baseball. 
No one would really know. Five, $3 million. You can buy a Bugatti for $3 million. That's insane for a baseball. It's as big as my fist. It's as big as my microphone. Actually, the baseball is probably a little bit smaller than the microphone. This thing is called the Blue Snowball. So it's it's a sphere. Looks like a baseball. But three mil. Good Lord. This is a giant middle finger to everybody. Like, ah, look at me. I can afford this baseball. Like, I have a Darwin Barney baseball. Is that, is that cool? Darwin Barney signed baseball. I got a certificate of authenticity, so come at me, bro. Darwin Barney, another cult hero for my age, Chicago Cubs fans. That middle infield of Darwin Barney and Starlin Castro, awesome. Loved it. Then you got Derek Lee, Marlon Byrd, Ramos Ramirez, then the Ian Stewart era in Chicago. Good Lord. Brian LaHare, Giovanni Soto, Wellington Castillo. I could just go on. Reed Johnson. I could just go on and on about these former Cubs players. But that, that my life has been hard as a Cubs fan until 2015, you would say. Because that's when they got good. But in those years when... I remember when Anthony Rizzo was talked about, oh, he needs to prove it, otherwise the Cubs should let him go. Same with Castro. And both players started showing up. And then Castro kind of tailed off. And then Rizzo kept being one of the best first basemen in major leagues and will have his number retired by the Chicago Cubs when it's all said and done. Him and Chris Bryant and probably Javier Baez as well will have their numbers retired. Like Ernie Banks is Mr. Cub. Anthony Rizzo, in regards to his Cubs legacy, went from a team that had 100 losses to a team that had 100 wins in a World Series. Like, in my lifetime, he's Mr. Cub. Not in the history of Chicago Cubs baseball. That's Ernie Banks. Everybody knows that. But in my lifetime, it's Anthony Rizzo. A lot of bad players. God, just makes me think about it. And after watching this documentary, it's 30 for 30. 30 for 30 always does. They do a good job. This one was just a little weird, I guess. It was just a Mark McGuire documentary. If you were going to call it Long Gun Summer, cover these two players. Actually cover both players equally, not just go, Mark McGuire. And then, oh yeah, here's some Sammy Sosa stuff. Like, oh, Mark McGuire, it's home run 62. We're going to have a 15-minute spot of him celebrating with his kid and the crowd, the stands, and all that stuff, getting the baseball back. Sammy Sosa hits 66 to pass Mark McGuire. It's Mark McGuire's not going to let Sammy Sosa beat him to the home run record. That was stupid. But after watching this, I thought, who could mimic this? What players in major leagues could go head-to-head for a home run child, home run trophy or whatever? Not trophy, but records. First person that came to mind was instantly Aaron Judge. I mean, why he just smacks home runs for fun. Now we gotta do more information, do do more research on the sign stealing scandal thing. But as far as dingers, Aaron Judge can smack some dingers. Same with his teammate Giancarlo Stan. When he was on the Miami Marlins, even the Florida Marlins before that, he smashed baseballs. Imagine if they still had Stan Yelich and Ozuna. Like, good lord. Uh, but Stan just smashes home runs for fun. He's not really good at anything else. He's kind of like today's Mark McGuire. He just hits home runs. That's really it. He's a home run hitter. Mark McGuire said 
in the documentary, some people don't like to admit they're just home run hitters, and that's what Giancarlo Stanton is. Strikes out a ton and hits home runs. Judge does a little bit of everything. That's He's a better baseball player than Giancarlo Stanton, but Stanton's arguably a better home run hitter. Like, you have the same division rivals going up against each other for this. Imagine being on the same team as somebody. That'd be crazy to think about. But keeping it in the state, in the city of New York, New York City, let's go with Pete Alonso. Pete Alonso led the league in home runs. He had 53 home runs last year as a rookie. If he can continue that, because after your rookie year, you're expected to just improve year on year. That's what's expected. Is it realistic? Not always. But after your rookie year, everything after that is expected. You're just going to get better. So he had 53 home runs. If we're going by that logic, which 53 home runs is not easy to get, as there was only one player in baseball last year that hit over 50 home runs, and that was Pete Alonso. It's going to be hard to copy that, but he could probably do it. So imagine, like, you have the Cubs Cardinals going up against this. Name is Mark McGuire. Imagine Pete Alonso versus Aaron Judge, the Battle of New York. That would be awesome as well. Forget teammates, it's the state and city of New York. Not even the same division, not even the same like league, but imagine those two going at it, home run for home run. Now leaving the city and state of New York, we'll go Cody Bellinger. Cody Bellinger uh, made the home run derby, was smacking home runs his rookie year. He had a lot of home runs. He kind of had a down year, kind of a down year, and then came back, won the NLV, NL MVP last year. I think he hit 47, 48 home runs, something like that. Duke can smack home runs. And unlike the people we mentioned before, Judge, Stanton, and Alonzo, he's not a heavy guy. He's tall and skinny. He's not that beefy where he just has that raw power that like Stanton or Alonzo or Judge have where they're just massive individuals. Cody Bellinger is tall, but he's not very beefy. But he just is... I don't know. I don't know where he gets his power, but he just smacks baseballs out of the park for fun. Like, goodness gracious. And that's why he won the MVP last year, a lot of along with the other stuff that he did. Uh, the next one, Kyle Schwarber. I think if Kyle Schwarber stops, I he could be, he is a home run hitter. Kyle Schwarber can destroy baseballs. Like, that's why I love Kyle Schwarber. Kyle Schwarber, along with Javier Baez, are my favorite players on the Cubs. Schwarber is awesome. I love that he hits home runs. Now, is he loved and outside? Is he as appreciated as much in Chicago as he is outside of Chicago? No. I would say City of Chicago and Cubs fans love him a lot more than people outside the City of Chicago. It's like a, he's another cult hero type thing. Not going to hit for average. He's going to smack some dingers. His home run, if you haven't seen this, just go search Kyle Schwarber at home run on top of the scoreboard. That ball is still there. That is one of the coolest things I've ever seen watching a Cubs game. Him ending a run home run to the top of the scoreboard. When my dad and there, when my dad and I were at a Cubs game two years ago, we watched the Cubs versus Padres. Kyle Schwarber smashed a home run, and I had my sick Kyle Schwarber shirt on. It's got a picture. Of, we talked about this the other day about my Kyle Schwarber shirt with all his face over there, all over it. Kyle Schwarber can smack dingers for fun. Like, he makes it look so easy. I love Kyle Schwarber. And then the last person on here is Mike Trout. Mike Trout probably won't get a home run record, 
but he will be that Ken Griffey Jr. that comes in third and is right behind these guys and smacking home runs. Mike Trout is undoubtedly the best player in the MLB. Undoubtedly. It's like in hockey, Connor McDavid is undoubtedly the best player in the NHL. Undoubtedly. Like, you would say probably Patrick Mahomes right now or Aaron Donald or someone like that. Like, you can even say undoubtedly with the NFL or the NBA. You got like Giannis, LeBron, Luka Doncic. Like, you got those guys. But in MLB and NHL, you know who the best players are. And that is Mike Trout in the MLB, Connor McDavid, and NHL. And both players are on terrible franchises. Not as a whole, but in recent memory, they're terrible franchises. Because obviously the Oilers won a lot of Stanley Cups with Wayne Gretzky. But Mike Trout, if he's on a better team, he would win an MVP every single season. Mike Trout is the best player in baseball, and he would be right there. I don't think he'd win the home run derby or home run competition, but he'd lead in everything else, RBIs, uh, batting average, all that stuff. He would lead all of that. Be a gold glove outfielder as well. Just like Ken Griffey Jr. He's not going to win the home run battle, but he'll be right there in the mix, but lead them in everything else. That's what Mike Trout is. Like, there's so many good players. Like, it's awesome. I love Mike Trout. I think those guys, if I would love to see a Yankees versus Mets home run battle. Like, even just to get to 61, because you got a former Yankee that hit 61 home runs, and Roger Maris. Like, imagine Judge or Stanton going up with that. And then Pete Alonso right there. Battle for New York is essentially what that would be. That would be awesome. I would absolutely love to watch those guys go at it in basically a dinger derby. It's even though it's in a game, but basically a dinger derby. And while we're on the topic of baseball, let's just keep it on for a little bit. I was going to take a break, but as we're still on the topic of baseball, the MLB, will this season actually happen? Because in this documentary, and we mentioned it a little bit earlier in the show, of Major League Baseball had a strike in the 94 and 95 seasons. There was no baseball. You had strikes. You had a strike in the 81 season as well. There's looking like there is no movement on either front. The MLBPA and the MLB. doesn't look like there's any momentum going on either side. looks like they're standing firm in what they believe in. And according, I don't know if I'm going to say this name right, Tim Kirchan, Kirchan on ESPN says there is much anger, there's so much anger and distrust between the MLBPA and the MLB. And this whole debacle, if you want to call it that, is not a great look for Major League Baseball whatsoever. And they brought this up on ESPN when I was on the website this morning. Like, the fight for money these guys are having is not great in the state that we are in in the United States of America. You have people that are on unemployment. You have a lot of people that aren't working right now. And these millionaires are complaining about the amount of money they're getting for not even playing a full season. This is not a great look for baseball. This is a really damaging look for Major League Baseball. You guys are just acting like spoiled brats of like, oh, we're not getting the amount of money we want. You're not even, you're going to play like 40 games. It's not even anywhere close to a full season. You're playing 122 games less 
if you go with the 40-game thing or 50-game thing, whatever you want to do, it's not even worth having a season anymore, to be honest. Just wait till next year. Like, the players are being annoying. The MLB Owners Association is being annoying. This is just a terrible look for baseball. And baseball, at this point in time, was not doing great anyways. In recent history, it hasn't been doing great as far as live attendance. When you see teams like the Tigers, the Orioles, the Padres, not having any fans in their stands. The Royals, even some of the good teams struggle getting fans in their stands during a regular season. Like, it's been talked about. Like, even my, uh, Bryce Harper, make baseball fun again. Now, Mike, or not Mike, Bryce Harper. And Bryce Harper's not the best poster boy for baseball. I know he's the most vocal, but he's not the best player by any stretch of the imagination. But he's obviously been the most vocal of most baseball fun again. So, I don't know. Baseball's been losing fans a lot recently. And this is definitely not a good look for baseball. And in my opinion, just scrap the whole thing. Just come back next year. Do everything better. There was, an, there was already not a great relationship between Manfred and the Players Association anyways after lowering, basically lowering the value of the World Series trophy, which is called the Commissioner's Trophy. Like, the Justin Turner of the Dodgers came out and even said that. He was like, hey, this is called the Commissioner's Trophy, and the commissioner of the league is devaluing this trophy. When the whole science scaling scandal came out, like there's not, there's been already not a great relationship as far as 2020 is concerned between Manfred and the players. So I don't think anything's going to happen this year. If I'm being 100 honest, and do I think it's even worth happening? No, I don't think it's worth happening. I don't think either side's going to really move off their brit off their ledge, and we're just going to go not have baseball this year, which is sad. But I don't know when it's going to start up. Like, look at the NBA starting late July, the MLS starting in middle of July. Like base, like those things announced they were back like a few weeks ago, to some extent a month ago. The MLB, if they're announcing they're coming back now after their what two weeks of spring training, they're going to have to probably start in August, maybe maybe July, like late July, if that. Is it even worth having the season this year? We're going to play 50 games. No, it's not really worth it. So I just say to scrap the whole thing. And I love baseball. As I said earlier, out of all my teams, I've been a Chicago Cubs fan for ever since I was born. We loved it. We went to Cubs games, Iowa Cubs games. Watch the Cubs on TV. I have family that lives from in Chicago. My family's from Illinois. So... We are Cubs fans. My entire family. Like, if you look around my family, the Blackmans and the Blicks side of the family, there's fans of different sports teams all over the place. Like, in the NFL, we got Packers fans, Falcons fans, Bills fans, Steelers fans, Bears, Cowboys, Cardinals, Giants fans. Like, we got every fan accounted for on on our family for the NFL. For baseball, we're all Cubs fans. Whether on my dad's side or my mom's side, we're Cubs fans. I want the Cubs to play this year. I want the Cubs to play. But is it going to happen? No. I do not think so. Because the players aren't budging. 
The MLB is not budging. As he said on ESPN, there's so much anger and distrust between the Players Association and the MLB. Not a good look for Major League Baseball this year. Very bad look, if I do say so myself. But we do have baseball coming back today. The Iowa High School Baseball Association is starting today. You have two games at Principal Park, I think, at 1-5 and five today, if I saw that right. And it's the first high school sports taking place in the country. So America is really just watching Iowa as like the guinea pig and see if how we handle this and see how it works. But opening day is today. The rest of the country is watching the state of Iowa. And so good luck to all the teams that are playing. As high school seniors, you probably thought you weren't going to get a season. Now the season's starting in July 15th or June 15th. So better late than never, I guess. But congratulations to the players that are starting their season day. Have a good season. And I hope to hear about some good stuff coming from the Iowa high school baseball season. Hope Johnston can get a state championship. Urbandale, I think, is the top dog right now in their division. So hopefully they'll fall off their perch eventually. But that's all we got for this first portion of the Logan Blattman Show. We'll come back. We got some KBO scores to go over. We got some Bundesliga and La Liga came back. And then we got some Premier League stuff because the Premier League comes back in a few days. So we'll talk about that. Then we got some college football stuff regarding the University of Iowa. And then another game of yay or nay. All coming up right after this short break. All right, one and all, welcome back to this Monday edition of the Logan Blattman Show. Right now in the beautiful city of Urbandale, Iowa. It is 86 degrees and sunny. I expect to be 88. We'll get that to in a little under an hour, so expect it to be there around 3. 0% chance of rain, which is beautiful. And wind coming to south-southeast at 14 miles an hour. Air quality is good, and it feels like 89 degrees. And before we get into our next talking point, we're going to go over some scores of the KBO, La Liga, Bundesliga, all that kind of crap. I was just scrolling through Instagram, and I came across this. It's an NFL Network post, so I'll go on my Explore page a lot. I really don't follow a lot of, like, I don't follow any athletes, and I don't follow a lot of news sites or NFL, like Sports Center, ESPN, all that stuff on Instagram. So when I go to my Explore page, sometimes they'll pop up, I'll refresh it, and sometimes they'll pop up based off things I've liked or whatever, or things I've shared or pages I've visited, whatever. And this one popped up. And I think this is the dumbest question I've heard in the NFL in a very long time. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm completely underestimating this player, but as of right now, I don't see how this is a question. Which running back will have a more dominant 2020? Now, when you hear that, you're like, oh, it's probably got to be something like Chris McCaffrey or Derrick Henry or Saquon or Ezekiel Elliott or stuff like that. It's got to be one of those guys, right? Or Nick Chubb or one of those guys. Um, No, it was, well, one of them was there, Saquon Barkley. But the other running back in question was Connor, James Connor. Why is that why is that a talking point? James Conner, after I traded for him with Spencer, he did absolutely nothing for my team. I thought I got a very good trade. And then he got hurt. James Conner is a good running back. No sense there's no way around it. He is a good running back. But to compare him to Saquon Barkley? To ask that question of who is going to have a better season, 
the top three running back in the league or James Conner? James Conner, in his career, while playing for the Pittsburgh Steelers, has not had a season over 1,000 yards yet. He played 10 games in 2019. He had 464 rushing yards. In his time in Pittsburgh, he has amassed a grand total of 1,581 rushing yards. So that's what we have right now for James Conner. He has also totaled... Uh, where's the touchdown? 16 total touchdowns in his career, 12 coming in his second season in the league, which was by far his best season in the league. So James Conner, as we said, 1,581 yards in his time being the starting running back for Pittsburgh. Saquon Barkley in his first year in the league rushed for 1,300 yards. 1,300 yards with 11 touchdowns in one season in the NFL, playing for a much worse team running behind a much worse offensive line. The differences in teams are not even close. The Pittsburgh Steelers are a hundred times better than the New York Giants. Saquon Barkley is the only offensive weapon on that team. Now they've added Slayton. Now they have uh, Evan Ingram there as well. So you've got options there for Daniel Jones. But offensive line-wise, before they drafted Andrew Thomas... Their offensive line was non-existent. Saquon Barkley was getting his yards by himself. My dad said that about LaShawn McCoy a few years ago. It was the preseason, Josh Allen's rookie year. My dad turned to me and said, Logan, whatever yards J.D. McCoy gets this season, he will have earned every yard because of how bad their offensive line is. Saquon Barkley earns every yard he gets playing for the New York Giants. There's conversations, I don't agree with these conversations, but if he is the best running back in the NFL, that he is better than, say, Christian McCaffrey. I don't agree with that because I think Christian McCaffrey is levels above everybody in the running back game. But Saquon Barkley is number two. Why is he getting mentioned the same breath on who's going to have a better season with James Conner? I like James Conner. I have no problem with James Conner. I watched him at Pittsburgh. I love the story of James Conner. I think it's all very, very cool stuff. But why is he getting mentioned in the same breath as Saquon Barkley? When Saquon, in his first year in the NFL, has almost as much rushing yards as James Conner has in his entire NFL career. In his three years. Now, he has really only seen playing time his last two years in the NFL. And he has only started 22 games. As opposed to Saquon's 29. Because Saquon was drafted to be the main guy for the New York Giants. James Conner, I think, was drafted in the third round to be a backup option to Le'Veon Bell. Le'Veon Bell set out. James Conner showed out. Rushed for 973 yards, 12 touchdowns. Le'Veon Bell goes to the Jets. I'm not saying he's not a bad running. He's not a good running back. He's a very talented running back. He was injured a lot last year, but he's still a good running back. But please... NFL Network, don't mention him in the same breath as Saquon Barkley. And a simple way to do it, like, you're like oh, he's played in X more games than James James Conner. Yards per attempt, in his three years, James Conner averages 4.4 yards per attempt. Saquon Barkley averages 4.8. And that's two, two less years and a lot less, att- a lot more attempts 
Because if you have less attempts, you're obviously your numbers of getting yards per attempt are going to go up. Because you're not going to break out huge runs every single time you touch the ball. I think Saquon Barkley leads the league in yards over 20 yards or something like that. Maybe that's wrong. But come on. NFL Network, you're supposed to know this. You, you're the NFL Network. The NFL Network. You should not be the guys posing that type of question. That's something I expect to see on first take or something like or around the horn which is a show i still don't understand till this day i don't think anybody really understands how, how around the horn works it doesn't make any sense and i don't know does it get viewership because i never watch it i don't think anybody i think the only people that watch it are like trying to figure out how the show works i don't think they actually know what's going on but yeah that was a stupid question um please don't bring that up again nfl network even the comments, the first comment on the Instagram post was, I'm a Steelers fan, but how is this a question? I think James Conner is a very nice running back. I think he's a top 15 running back in the league, maybe even pushing top 10. But he ain't top 2. And that's Saquon Barkley. So don't mention, the only people that should be mentioned with Saquon Barkley is Christian McCaffrey. Who's going to have a better scene between those two? Because those are the number 1 and 2 backs in the league. And they do pretty similar things. Christian McCaffrey does more things than Saquon Barkley does and has not missed a game in his entire NFL career. So I would, that's the only person I would really say could compete with McCaffrey is Saquon Barkley. Putting James Conner up there. I don't know who mentioned that. I don't know who brought that up, but I would like to meet them and ask them what was going through your head when you said James Conner could actually compete with Saquon Barkley. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Saquon Bartley tears his ACL week one and James Conner blows him out of the water. Then that question's not really stupid. Because then it's like, oh, well, statistically speaking, yeah, James Conner had a better year <laughs> than Saquon Barkley. Even if he gets hurt, he didn't get hurt week one. J- James Conner had 500 rushing yards. Saquon had 10. So, I mean, technically speaking, he did blow him out. But as we stand here right now with both 100% healthy, and after watching them and what they've done so far in their career, this is a very, very, very dumb question. It's not even close. It's one of the dumb, dumbest questions I've ever heard. If you even want to go receiving yards, Saquon Barkley, in his best receiving yards year, 721. In his entire career, James Conner has amassed 748 yards. So, I mean, it's not close. I don't know why that was mentioned, why that was brought up, because it doesn't make any sense. I don't, I, please don't bring up that question again. I didn't want to even talk about that. I just was scrolling through Instagram. And was like, what the hell is that? Who made that connection? Who made that comparison? Cause they need to, they need to get sat down and explain something to them that this comparison doesn't make a lot of sense. So yeah, I didn't really want to talk about, but what, but it was just there and it bothered me. So I had to talk about it. So let's get into some KBO scores from this past weekend going from Saturday uh, Samsung beat KT 5-3. Kiwoom dominated the NC Dinos. Dominated the NC Dinos. It wasn't even close. 18-5. Absolute demolition of the NC Dinos. The best team in the league. But thankfully, for the NC Dinos fans, the two teams that are close behind them both lost 7-6. And Doosan losing to Hanwa and LG losing to Lote. They have Kia beating SK 2-1. And KT beating Samsung again. Remember that one game got postponed. So they're back with this one. 
beating them in this one 7-4. So they split the series on Saturday. But let's look at this Kiwoom versus NC Dinos game. Now, it started off just like a normal KBO league. The away team gets two runs to start off the game. It's just like a typical thing in the KBO. Just how it always seems to start off. The away team starts off winning, and then the home team wins. Now this one. Kiwoom launched six runs in the third inning to get an 8-0 lead. Then NC comes back, gets three runs in the third as well. And then two runs in the fourth, two runs in the fifth, one run in the seventh, one run in the eighth, and then craps out four in the ninth inning. They had 17 hits and 18 runs in the game for Kiwoom. What an insane game for them. Kim Hwae Sung, three hits, four RBIs in the game for Kiwoom. We also have Park Byung-ho, the first baseman, one hit and three RBIs and two walks in this game for him. Pitching-wise for Kiwoom, Han Hyun-hee, six innings pitched, nine hits, four earned runs, and five strikeouts in the game. No walks. For the starting pitcher. It's very impressive stuff from Kiwoom. As far as the NC Dinos go, their starting pitcher, Lee Jae Hawk, pitched two and two-thirds innings. Two hits, two runs, two strikeouts. I don't know why you pulled him so early. It's not a terrible stat line. And then you replaced him with Kim Young Tae. One and one-third innings pitched. Five hits, six runs, one walk, and two strikeouts. It was just all downhill from there. What well, didn't get much better after that. 18-5 over the best team in the league. Jeez, dominating performance there. We had some high-scoring games yesterday as well. The LZ Twins bounced back, beat Lote 10-6. Samsung beat KT 12-0. Hanwa beat Doosan 3-2. And NC bounced back, beat Kiwum 9-5. And SK beat Kiwum 4-3. Let's look at that Samsung versus KT score. Neither team over 500 this season. But in this game... KT amassed 11 hits and didn't get a single run out of it. And as we said earlier, Samsung started off with a 2-0 lead in the first inning, and then it just made it easier for 12-0 was the final score there. Yeah, just not a not a great game for KT all around. Batting-wise, Lee Sung-Gyai Sung had two hits, three RBIs in this game. Hak Ju Lee, four hits, three RBIs, and four at-bats as well a perfect game for him pitching wise Wante in for Samsung six innings pitched eight hits no earned runs one walk in five strikeouts so it's a very efficient game from the Samsung lines nothing to really report on KT as of they didn't get any runs into the game just not a very good game for them let's look at LG versus Lote as well LG bouncing back 22 and 13 is their record this season Messed 14 hits. Lote got 16 in the game. And like we said before, Lote, two runs in the first inning. And, yeah, just wasn't enough. LG bounced back. It was 4 to nothing after the fourth inning. And then the bottom of the fifth, LG gets four runs tied up and then six runs in the sixth, and then it's just over. Lote can only amass two more runs in the seventh, and it's just, it's just over at that point. Now, we got some games tomorrow. Reminder, they don't really play on Mondays, but tomorrow we got KT versus SK, LG versus Hanwa, Samsung facing Doosan, Lote versus Kiwoom, and NC Dinos taking on the Kia Tigers. Looking at the standings right now, NC is still on top of the leaderboard. They're four games above the LG Twins, who sit at 23-13. and 13. The Doosan Bears have 13 losses. They're only 21 wins in the season, one less game than the LG Twins. Then it goes Kiwoom, Kia, Lote, Samsung, 
KTSK, and then Hanwa, the lone team below 10 wins on the season with eight wins. They are 8-27 so far this season. 18 games behind the NC Dinos this year. NC, I don't know if we said their record, but 26-9 and nine is the Dinos record. And much like Hanwa, they're the only team above 10 below 10 losses on the season or 10 wins nc is the only team below 10 losses on the season with nine to their name so just as usual some exciting stuff going on in the kbo some things that you never thought you'd see before because you probably didn't watch it (laughs) but it was there nonetheless so let's look at some other scores around the world let's go in the world of soccer or football whatever you want to call it And we had some new leagues take place this week. We had La Liga coming back on Friday. Or no, was it Thursday? It was Thursday. With Real Betis taking on Sevilla. Nice little win there for Sevilla in the game. 2-0 in the Seville Derby. Going on to Friday, we had Granada taking on Getafe and Valencia versus Levante. Granada was the only one that got the win. 2-1 over Getafe and Valencia and Levante. Tied 1-1. to Moving on to Saturday's action, Lionel Messi was back for Barcelona. It looked like he hadn't missed a step. I think he was out for 98 days or something like that. Back, 4-0 win over Mallorca. Goal and two assists in the game. Man of the match for Barcelona in the win. Real Valladolid beat Leganes 2-1. Villarreal beat Celta Vigo 1-0. And Espanyol beat Deportivo Alaves 2 Nil. Let's look at that Barcelona versus Mallorca game. 4-0 score there. Goal scored after, I think, the 65th minute by Arturo Vidal for Barcelona. And it was just it was all downhill from there. You got goals from Vidal, Martin Braithwaite, and Jordi Alba. And then Messi sealed the deal in the 92nd minute of the game to get his goal. Two assists and a goal, as we said. Luis Suarez came off the bench, had an assist in the game as well. Just a easy game kind of expected that Barcelona would come away with a victory here and even by that margin they're just levels above Mallorca and then moving on to Sunday we had Real Madrid taking on Ibar number two in the league beating them three to one Tony Cruz scored in very quick fashion against Ibar this weekend and we also had the other Madrid team Atletico Madrid taking on Athletic Bilbao drawing that game one to one And then we had one more game on Sunday as well with Real Sociedad taking on Osasuna. 1-1 was the final there. For Real Madrid and Ibar, as we said, Tony Cruz started off the scoring really, really quick. Scoring after the fourth minute of the game. Scoring in the fourth minute of the game. Sergio Ramos got a goal and Marcelo got a goal all for Real Madrid. Gareth Bale marked his 250th game for Real Madrid. He's very, been very underappreciated in his time at Real Madrid, especially as of late. But he's been injured a lot, and but he's still, I would consider him a club legend. Not on the, the tiers of Ronaldo, Raul, Iker Casilla, Sergio Ramos, all those people, but a club legend nonetheless. But for Real Madrid, Eden Hazard recorded an assist in this game, and Marcelo was named the man of the match for Ibar. Bigas got the lone goal for them coming off the bench in the 60th minute. But it was already 3-0. Game was over. Nothing to really fight at that point. Just a tough loss for them. And then we have some games going on today with Levante taking on Sevilla. That was a 1-1 draw. And then we got Real Batiste taking on Granada in a little bit. We also got games on Tuesday 
with Getafe taking on Espanol and Villarreal taking on Mallorca and Barcelona taking on Leganes. And then we got more games to talk about on Wednesday, but we'll talk about those on Wednesday. Re-looking at the league standings right now, Barcelona still sit top of the league with 61, Real Madrid at 59. We got Sevilla sitting third with 51 points, Real Sociedad rounding out the Champions League spots with 47 with Getafe and Atletico Madrid both tied on goal on points right now with 46 but Getafe has a plus 11 goal differential to Atletico Madrid's plus 10. Bottom of the league Espanyol 23 points they got a nice little win this weekend which was much needed they're now tied with Leganes in points this season both on 23 and then Mallorca sits in 18th with 25 points with Celta Vigo in 17th with 26 and Ibar with 27 sitting in 16th. And everybody in those last five spots in the league, 16 down to 20, only Espanyol recorded a win to get them back to where they needed to be. Their last few games for those teams all resulted in losses. Not great for those teams. And Espanyol needed it, beating Deportivo Alaves, who currently sit in 15th, but they're on 32 points. So you'd expect them to avoid the drop this season especially with the goal differential being the best out of those bottom five teams this season and now we got Bundesliga action this is a league that we've been talking about for a while since they've been back for a while I guess you could say I don't really know how how long has the Bundesliga been back it's been back for a fat minute so let's just look at the scores let's look back on Friday RB Leipzig beat Hoffenheim 2-0 we have Borussia Dortmund taping on Fortuna Dusseldorf 1-0 victory for Dortmund Eintracht Frankfurt pounded Hertha Berlin 4-1. Wolfsburg and Freiburg drew 2-2. Union Berlin beat FC Cold 2-1. Werder Bremen basically damned Paderborn to the drop, beating them 5-1 in that game. Paderborn now 8 points behind Werder Bremen, sitting all the way down in 18th place. They're going down. It's pretty much a lock at this point. They have a minus 33 goal differential, which is the most. They've allowed 67 goals, which is the most. They've won four games, which is the least 20 points. Eight points back of Werder Bremen, who are now tied with Fortuna Dusseldorf in 16th place. So Werder Bremen fighting the drop with all their might, beating Paderborn 5-1. And then Bayern Munich beat Borussia Mönchengladbach 2-1. Bayern Munich were without Robert Lewandowski, who's top scorer in the league, and Thomas Muller, who's the leading assister of the league this year. And they still managed to get a win, which shows Bayern Munich's quality. Uh, they had a couple of young players start in this game. Benjamin Pavard, the right back for Bayern Munich, got an own goal, but assisted the last goal of the game to Leon Goretzka, who got the winning goal late in the game, in the 80-something minute of the game, to seal the win for Munich. They have not lost in a very long time. Borussia Mönchengladbach dropped down one spot. Bayer Leverkusen drawing. On Sunday to Schalke 1-1. That moved them up one spot in the standings. Borussia Mönchengladbach has lost their last two games. Speaking of Bayer Leverkusen, that 1-1 draw against Schalke. Also on Sunday, we had Augsburg taking on Mainz. Augsburg gets the win over Mainz. Moving them up to 13th in the league on 35 points. Mainz very in danger of going down. They are not in the relegation zone, but they had 31 points. There's only three points above Fortuna Dusseldorf and Werder Bremen. So they are going to need to step up their game here in a little bit. Werder Bremen, you can kind of expect them to drop some points here with Bayern Munich taking them on this Tuesday. So it's uh, Werder Bremen are going to drop back down. They're going to stay at 28 points on the season. Well, unless something crazy happens. There's been crazy things that have happened. Bayern Munich's 
Only lost four times all year, and Werder Bremen's won seven. So, yeah, maybe maybe something does happen where Werder Bremen beats them. Oh, my God. Anything's possible, I guess. Then we got Fortuna Dusseldorf taking RB Leipzig, so we should expect a loss for Fortuna Dusseldorf, who sit down in 16th place, again, tied with Werder Bremen, which shouldn't change the league standings at all, really. And Mainz is taking on Borussia Dortmund, so everything will pretty much stay the exact same at the bottom of the league again. Paderborn pretty much destined for the drop with 20 points, 8 points behind 17 and 16 in the standings. Goal differential is the worst in the league, so they don't have that to save them either if they do tie them on points. So it's just just a bad season. It's a down season for Paderborn. They're going to have to go back to the Bundesliga too. Now those two teams, they're also in the relegation zone, Virtuta Dusseldorf and Werder Bremen. They're going to be battling it crazy. Not just to stay clear of that, but if they can't manage to get out of that zone, just get in 16th. Because you have the relegation playoff, you'll battle a team in the second Bundesliga, and yeah, try to fight for your right to stay up. So if you tie on goal different, if tie on goals, this are points, you just hope you stay in 16th if you cannot get to 15th. Because you don't want to be guaranteed to go down. You like to have your destiny in your own hands for this next season. But yeah, that's what's going on in the Bundesliga for games going on tomorrow. Borussia Mönchengladbach versus Wolfsburg, Werder Bremen versus Bayern Munich, Freiburg versus Hertha Berlin, and Union Berlin versus Paderborn. Now, coming up soon is the most popular league in the world, the MLS, which is coming back on July 11th. No, I'm, I'm joking, obviously. The Premier League is back on Wednesday. So two days from now, we have Aston Villa taking on Sheffield United and Manchester City taking on Arsenal. Then they got games on Friday with Norwich taking on Southampton. Tottenham taking on the mighty Manchester United. Saturday, we got Watford versus Leicester. Brighton versus Arsenal. West Ham versus Wolverhampton Wanderers. Bournemouth versus Crystal Palace. Newcastle taking on Sheffield United. Aston Villa taking on Chelsea. And Everton taking on Liverpool in the Merseyside Derby. Liverpool, 82 points. Guaranteed to win the league. They have 27 wins out of the 29 games they played. One draw, one loss. They're winning the league, which is incredibly sad, but we have to accept it at this point. And at the bottom, Norwich sit on 21. They're pretty much destined to go down. Aston Villa, 19th with 25 points. Then Bournemouth in a three-way tie with Watford and West Ham on 27 points this season, which is scary. You got a team in West Ham who have a a history of being in the Premier League, one of the most popular teams in the Premier League because of their just not just not even they're not even that good, but it's just their academy that they've had. A lot of great players have come out of the West Ham Academy, like uh, Rio Ferdinand, Frank Lampard, Michael Carrick, Mark Noble. So you got like you got some legendary players there, and it'd be sad to see West Ham going down to the Championship and seeing. So I mean, if they rotate with Leeds, then it feel like normal because Leeds has been out of the Premier League for a very very long time and they're one of the more historic teams in England so hopefully they can come back up so Manchester United can beat the crap out of them when they come back up so there's a nice little heated rivalry there between United and Leeds for years it was always a great rivalry between those two teams and with the Premier League coming back on Wednesday reminder Aston Villa versus Sheffield United and Manchester City versus Arsenal I want to do this real quick so I've got some things here. I'm going to make some late season predictions because at 29 games, they play, I think, 10 more this season or nine more for some teams who are on 29 points. 
And so I thought it'd be fun to look at some awards that get given out at the end of the season. So we had a PFA Player of the Year, PFA Young Player of the Year, Golden Boot, Top Assister, Golden Glove Manager of the Season, yada, yada, yada. So here we go. Here are my predictions for this season. For, let's start with Manager of the Year. Jurgen Klopp. I think that one's the obvious one. I, there's one more person that could get mentioned there. We'll talk about him in a little bit. Jurgen Klopp ending Liverpool's 30-year title drought, winning the Premier League. There's going to be a little asterisk to it, but it's still a title nonetheless. Getting him that, I think he deserves Manager of the Year as much as I hate it. I think he deserves it, but I think you could also mention Chris Wilder and the job that he's done at Sheffield United. Seventh place. Sheffield United, that is above Tottenham and Arsenal and Everton and Newcastle. All clubs that are considerably bigger than the Sheffield club. But they're sitting there in seventh place with 43 points. Dean Henderson, Manchester United loney at Sheffield United, is second in the league in clean sheets this season with 10. So it's, they're just blowing everybody's mind. So I think it's got to be between, it's between Klopp and Wilder. Wilder's the only challenger to Jurgen Klopp. I think in the storyline, I think Wilder deserves it. But as regards to the team winning the league, I think Klopp, for what he's built at Liverpool, sadly deserves him to get the league title or the manager of the year award. Golden Glove, I think it's Allison. He won the award last year. He's currently second, tied with Henderson, another person I can't remember who, with 10. Nick Pope currently sits on top of that with 11, playing for Burnley, who currently sit 10th in the league with 39 points to their name this season. They've actually lost more games than they've won which is kind of crazy to think about, but they currently sit in 10th place. They have not lost in their last six games. They've won three, drawn three. They're going to stay up. And Nick Pope has been a big reason for that with his 11 saves, 11 clean sheets this season for Burnley. But I think Allison, with the defense that Liverpool has, will be able to get that clean sheet in the Golden Glove again this season. Top assister, Kevin De Bruyne, is only closely followed by Trent Alexander-Arnold. Kevin De Bruyne sits on 16 points this season, or 16 assists. Trent Alexander-Arnold with 12. Riyad Mahrez has 8, and Adama Traore and Sung Hyung-Min sit with 7. I'm going to think Kevin De Bruyne continues that with Sergio Aguero on 16 goals this season, which is currently 3rd in the league, tied with a couple other people. I think Kevin De Bruyne will keep that. I think Kevin De Bruyne will stay strong with the goal scoring, or the assisting mark. He's 4 assists above Trent Alexander, which is not... An easy one to beat. Four assists is not like a close gap really in the assist margin. I mean, it is close, but I don't think he's going to be able to catch him. I think he'll stay right on his tail, but I don't think he will catch him. According to whoscored.com, Kevin De Bruyne has been the highest rated player in the season so far, right above Adama Traore and Riyad Mahrez. And the team of the season so far, he is one of the central midfielders there, along with no other Manchester City players but Manchester United's Harry Maguire is one of the center backs in this team of the season for who scored.com I think Kevin De Bruyne keeps that mark and keeps on going up with the assists uh golden boot I think it's Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang if you look at the top scores the top 10 goal scorers in the league Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang is responsible for 43 percent of Arsenal's goals he scored 17 out of the 40 they've had this season he won the golden boot last year with Mo Salah and Sadio Mane Jamie Vardy currently leads the league in scoring with 19. But I think the reliance on Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang will get him the mark at the end of the season. He's going to be challenged. Salah, 
Aguero, Sadio Mane, Marcus Rashford's going to be there as well. It's going to be a close challenge between those players for the top goal-scoring marks in the league. But I think Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang's clinical finishing, and he's been there, done that before. I think it'll get him to that mark. Maybe Jamie Vardy can hold on. He's two goals above Aubameyang so far. We'll see if he can hold on. I think Jamie Vardy's his closest contest. I think Sadio Mane and Mo Salah are obviously going to keep up with that because they tied him on it last year. And Sergio Aguero, one of the greatest goal scorers the Premier League's ever seen. But I'm going to give it to Aubameyang. PFA Young Player of the Year. I think it's Trent Alexander-Arnold. I don't really think there's a competition there. Trent, 12 assists in the league so far, which is second in the Premier League behind Kevin De Bruyne. There's not a lot of right backs in the world that can do it. He does. One of the best, if not the best, attacking right back or fullback in general in the world at this point in time. And, yeah, I think he wins the Young Player of the Year. And as far as Premier League Player of the Year, the PFA Player of the Year, I'm going to give it to, oh, this is going to be hard. Because you got Liverpool, 82 points. They've not they've lost one and drawn one. The rest have been wins this season. So it's hard not to give this to a Liverpool player. you got Jordan Henderson there. You've got Alexander-Arnold, Andrew Robertson, Virgil van Dijk won it last year, Mane, Salah. And a lot of people are arguing for Jordan Henderson to win this thing. But I don't think if you took him out, he's as important as someone else, like an Alexander-Arnold or Sadio Mane or someone like that. If you took him out, if they if he was out injured, would it affect the team greatly? I don't think so. I think he's probably out of the starting lineup. I think his leadership is very important, but I think you're going to replace him in the starting lineup. I think he's talented. I think he's a good player. But he's not irreplaceable like Alexander-Arnold or Robertson or Mane or Salah or one of those players. So with the player of the year, PFA player of the year, I'm going to go with Trent Alexander-Arnold. Winning the young player of the year, winning the PFA player of the year, I think if they took him out of that team, they're not the same team. Their right back options behind him are Nathaniel Klein, and that's about it pretty much. And I don't, Klein's not that good. I think if you lost Alexander-Arnold, I think you'd lose a lot of stuff from that team. And it's weird to think about just as a young right back. And if they want to, if they don't want to give him that because they're like, ah, oh, we gave the young player of the year award, I think it'd easily go to Kevin De Bruyne or Sadio Mane or one of those two. I think those are two of the best players in the Premier League. Sadio Mane currently on 14 goals this season. And according to whoscored.com, is the fifth best player in the Premier League tied with Ricardo Pereira. I think it's either going to be him or Alexander-Arnold for a player of the year this year. And Kevin De Bruyne. But I don't know if they'll give it to De Bruyne because Manchester City, though second place in the league, are a wide, wide margin between them and Liverpool this season in regards to points this year. 57 points is what Manchester City's on. Liverpool's on 82. So I think it has to go to a Liverpool player. I just mean, if it goes to a Liverpool player, I think it's between Mane and Trent Alexander-Arnold for that award. Because I think those two... Other than Virgil van Dijk, obviously, and Allison are two of the most important players on Liverpool, if not the most important players on Liverpool. And Salah can also get mentioned up there, but I think Mane and Alexander-Arnold are going to... I think they deserve the award this year, and I hate saying that, but I think they do. And pains me to say it. I hate saying anything positive about Liverpool Football Club. And it hurts me that they're going to win the Premier League this year. It's no coincidence that when the Kansas City Chiefs win the Super Bowl and Liverpool wins the Premier League, the whole world goes down the toilet. There's no coincidence in that. The world cannot handle those two things happening at the same time. Maybe once in their own in their own year, but together, it's just the utter destruction of 
the United of the world, just the world in general. I almost said the United States, but the world. The Chiefs destroyed the United States. Liverpool is going to take out the world, which is crazy to think about how crazy that world's been since the Chiefs have won the Super Bowl. It's sad. It's very sad. But yeah, I'm excited for the Premier League to come back again. Wednesday, June 17th, the Premier League is returning. I'm excited. I love the Premier League. I'm going to be sat down watching those games this weekend, and it is going to be fun. I love that. I love that sports are slowly coming back. You got the Premier League's back, La Liga, Serie A are kind of coming back. Serie A things coming back this weekend as well. And the Bundesliga, then you got baseball with KBO. The NBA is now coming back. NHL is now coming back. The MLS is coming back. And then you got the MLB just sitting on their thumbs, just not really knowing what they're doing. Bunch of millionaires complaining about how much money they really deserve throughout this season that they're not really going to play. I don't know. It's a weird time in sports, but I'm just happy that things are slowly coming back to normal. And so let's move on to football because football is one of those things that doesn't look like it's going to be affected. Maybe, well, especially the NFL. I don't know if the NFL will be that affected, but college football might be affected. They've always, they've just announced what's going on as far as schooling with what players are doing, but, or what students are doing. So like they're, they're moving the start date back a week. So, um, August 17th. They're ending late November. I don't know what that will mean for football, but I know what it means for school. So, with that being said, let's let's get into some college football talk. The University of Iowa has announced they have parted ways with strength coach Chris Doyle. And I think I called him Brian Doyle the other day. I don't know why I called him that. But here is ESPN's article in regards to Iowa parting ways with Chris Doyle. It's from Adam, Adam Rittenberg. Iowa's reached a separation agreement with longtime football strength coach Chris Doyle, the school announced Monday today. The assignment, the, the agreement signed Sunday is effective immediately. Doyle received 15 month salary, which equates to two payments of, that's a lot of numbers, $556,249.50. He and his family receive benefits from Iowa for 14 months, 15 months until he finds employment elsewhere. Doyle, who has led Iowa's strength and conditioning program since 1999, was placed on paid administrative leave June 6th after a large group of former players said spoken out about mistreatment in the program. Most of the allegations came from black players and centered Doyle on Doyle, the nation's highest paid strength coach, at $800,000 annually. Some players also made allegations toward head coach first Kirk Ferentz and several on-field assistants. Iowa has been home to our family for 21 years, Doyle said in a pre- prepared statement. I am grateful Iowa football provided me an opportunity to work with incredible players, coaches, and sports staff. I have worked diligently to make a positive impact on lives of student athletes, support them as they speak out, and look forward to continued growth. I am confident my re- that my record and character will be confirmed in the course of the independent review. The university and I have reached an agreement, and it is it is about it is time to move on from Iowa football. My family and I were looking forward to the next chapter. In a June 7th statement, Doyle said he never crossed the line of unethical behavior or bias based on race. Former players alleged Doyle disparaged, demanded and bullied them in the program. Iowa athletic director Gary Barta will address the media at 2 p.m. Eastern time, so it's happening about 2 hours ago. But Iowa stated in a news release announcing the separation agreement that will not be commenting further on Doyle pending 
on an independent study. Doyle's son, Dylan, a linebacker for Iowa, announced last week that he would be entering the NCAA's transfer portal. Barron's on Friday reiterated his state his support for the remaining coaches and staff, none of whom have been placed on leave or had their roles altered. He declined on the com- to comment on Doyle or the allegations, only saying that keeping Doyle in his role, quote, just wasn't a workable environment, end quote, amid the review. Doyle led Iowa State in the conditioning program throughout Ferentz's tenure. Ferentz said many of the allegations from former players are concerning. Players concerning Doyle's came to as a surprise to him. Quote, Coach Doyle probably has more power than any position coach here, former Iowa defensive back Deontay Morrow told ESPN last week. If Coach Ferentz is the CEO, Doyle is the COO. Doyle is the longest-term tenure coach with Ferentz. So what does that say? You're working with a guy that has that for many, many years. You mean to tell me you didn't know what type of person he is? That's where the article ends. We talked about this the other day when we first talked about it, I think last Wednesday, with Doyle and the strength staff having unlimited time pretty much with players in regards to the weight room and stuff like that. Ferentz has limited time to that. So Ferentz doesn't see everything that is going on. I know he's the head coach, but the strength coach is pretty much running its own program. The head coach doesn't stand there and make the strength coach do anything like he does with the office coordinators or defense coordinators and stuff like that. Strength coach is free reign to do whatever he wants, essentially. Carve their own workouts, carve their own practices, do that stuff. Like when I was at William Penn, Coach Hafner was not in the weight room. Coach Hafner was doing other things with the other coach, the office coordinators, assistant coaches, the defensive coordinators, all that stuff. He didn't have time to come sit in the weight room and watch us work out. That was Coach Haugen. Coach Haugen crafted, crafted all the workouts, told us what to do, and all of the assistant strength coaches did the exact same thing. There wasn't a lot of, oh, Coach Hafner, come in and watch us wait. This is what Coach Hafner wants us to do. This is what Coach Hafner's instructed me for you guys to do. Now you can do that, but he's not going to force him to do that. He doesn't have any real insane power over that. Strength coach and special teams coach kind of control their own environments, really. You're in charge of an entire staff. You get unlimited time with the players. So the fact that Kirk Ferentz doesn't know or didn't know about this stuff is not entirely surprising. It means a little surprising because, again, he's the head coach, but not that surprising because of the fact that he doesn't get that much time with the players. He has a limited amount of time he can spend with the players, whereas the strength coach can do whatever he wants, essentially. If you don't know that, then you just haven't been in a college atmosphere playing football. Because I don't think Coach Hafner stood on top of the stairs in the weight room and just washed down at us. I don't think he ever did that. Because he has more important things to do, like craft an offense or to help other coaches out. And he didn't have time for that. Does so much other things. And so with Kirk Ferentz, like, you have so much other things to do. And I think this was the right step for Iowa. I think get letting Doyle go was the obvious step. It was obvious it was going to happen. And when they announced they were doing a press conference, everyone was like, okay, yeah, he's he's gone. I don't think anybody really had a problem with it. No players were really saying Doyle needs to get fired. They were just wanting to call him out on some stuff that he said. But I do think this is the right decision for the University of Iowa. And Doyle, again, 1999 is when he started there, highest paid strength coach in the country. But, yeah, you can't ignore the statements that were coming. When it's multiple, multiple players saying something that are backing up each other and it's like you have to take immediate action that's what happened what happens to brian ferentz because i heard he was another person that was involved heavily in this whole ordeal it remains to be seen i don't know what their deal is with brian ferentz if they're going to let him go 
I know the ju the jury is still out on Brian Ferentz as a coach in general, so I don't think a lot of people will be too disappointed if he gets let go as well, which will be hard to believe because he is the son of arguably the greatest coach in Iowa football history, depending on who you ask. But, yeah, this was a step that needed to be taken by the University of Iowa, and, yeah, we'll see what Chris – we'll see what Doyle does in the coming years, but it just won't be at the University of Iowa. I think as a coach, as a strength coach, as, like, what his job was, he sounds like he's one of the best to ever do it, but in regards to him as a person and coaching, uh, that's where it kind of faltered a little bit. I – I don't know. It's hard to explain, uh, but yeah, this was definitely the right step for the University of Iowa moving forward. Now, with that being said, let's move on to another talking point. We got another game of yay or nay. It's a Monday, so we got a game of yay or nay. This week's edition of yay or nay will take place on would I start a franchise right now with the starting quarterback? We're going to go through the NFL stats, the passing stats from last season. We'll go through the top 40-yard leaders in the NFL and say the famous words, yay or nay. So let's go on. Now, I can also say if I say nay, there'll be a backup or nay, whatever. Start with Jameis Winston. Uh, nay. I would not start a franchise with Jameis. 30 interceptions. That's all I really need to say. Yeah, 5,100 yards is cool. 33 touchdowns is cool as well. Second in the league in passing touchdowns. Led the league in passing yards. But the 30 interceptions, that is a very, very scary number. That's why he only got signed to a $1.7 million deal. He led the league in passing yards and touch, second in touchdowns. Now you're a backup. Now, I think he's learning from the best quarterback to learn from in Drew Brees, much like Patrick Mahomes with Alex Smith. Not very turnover-prone guy. So I think Jameis Winston can learn a lot from Drew Brees. Dak Prescott, um, this one's tough. Um, I would say yay. I would, yeah. I'm, I'm a little more on the fence with it. I don't think he's worth as much money as he's talking about. He's not Russell Wilson by any stretch of the imagination. That's the kind of money he's preaching here. But I think Dak's a good quarterback. Um, I don't think he's a great quarterback. I think he's solid. He almost threw for 5,000 yards last year, 4,900 yards. 30 touchdowns, 11 picks, complete 65% of his passes. There's not a lot of stuff to dislike about Dak. I just don't think, I don't know. It's a weird system. He's, I, I don't know. I think he's got talent. I think he's got talent, but I'll say yay. It'll be hard. Jared Goff, next one. This one little divides opinions here. Uh, I'm going to say yay slash nay. Because I think there's a lot of things he can do that not a lot of quarterbacks can do. I think he can make a lot of throws that a lot of quarterbacks don't do. Let alone, he, like, they don't attempt it. I think he's got a, a insane arm talent. But, I don't know. His thinking at times is a little flawed. He got, some people are like, oh, he got found out in the Super Bowl. But there's a lot of people that get found out, quote unquote, by Bill Belichick. It's his third year in the NFL. First Super Bowl. I mean, it's hard to play against that type of team the Patriots in your first ever Super Bowl. But Jared Goff's an interesting quarterback. I think he's a good quarterback. I don't think he's amazing. So in that respect, if I want to start a, quarter, a franchise, I want a, a, a really 
top level quarterback and i don't know if he's that he might just be ha- like at a midway point in the nfl i'm gonna say nay overall i like jared goff but i don't know if i would take him in the top 10 if i'm looking for a franchise quarterback philip Rivers, nay he's too old i wouldn't start with him in last year he had probably his worst year in a very long time 20 interceptions 23 touchdowns it just was a struggle last year for Philip Rivers and him tearing up at his press conferences was sad to watch for a guy that really likes Philip Rivers. But I would say nay. Matt Liner or Matt Liner. Wow. Matt Ryan. Um if age is if we're taking out age, then yeah, I would start a franchise with Matt Ryan. Matt Ryan's a very underrated quarterback. I think he gets overlooked because of the weapons he has, but he's still a very good quarterback. He got last season, 66% completion percentage, 4,400 yards, 26 touchdowns. I would take him. I really like Matt Leonard. I think or, she said Matt Leonard again. I like Matt Ryan. I think he's a good quarterback and the Falcons have not complained. I think, I just think he gets a lot of hate that he doesn't really deserve. Russell Wilson. Yay. I think he's a top three quarterback in the NFL. I think this dude is amazing. Russell Wilson is my fav- one of my favorite quarterbacks in the league. I love Russell Wilson. That one's probably the easiest one on here. Tom Brady. As of right now, you asked me like five years ago? Yeah. But at 43, I'm going to say nay. And Tom Brady did not have his greatest season last year. He had a very below- he had an average season. It's showing a sign of age. I think he can have a good year this year because the Buccaneers have tons of weapons for him. Arguably the best wide receiver core in the NFL. And then you got Gronk back with OJ Howard. And Ronald Jones showed a little bit of signs that he looks like he could be actually become a capable NFL running back. But right now, I'd say nay for Brady. Derek Carr, nay. I think he's a good quarterback, but I think he's just an average quarterback. I think he's fine, but I would definitely not start my franchise with him. I think he led the league in, inter- in completion percentage last year with 70%. He doesn't do anything that'll mess up a lot of things but he doesn't take a lot of chances he doesn't have a strong arm it's not he doesn't really have a lot of qualities that go yes i want this guy to be my franchise quarterback i think he's good i think he's a good quarterback but i would personally would not start a franchise with him carson wentz yay i love carson wentz carson wentz last year threw for four thousand yards didn't have a single receiver over 400 yards receiving or 500 yards i can't remember which one it was receiver we're not talking about it's like zach Ertz doesn't count he's a tight end receiver didn't have a single receiver over 500 yards receiving which is ridiculous the first time it's ever happened in nfl history carson wentz is an amazing quarterback he just needs to stay healthy which isn't all his fault like the stuff that happened with his knee with the rams he got a helmet straight to the knee they got a concussion last year where he got speared by Jadavian Clowney. basically screwed the eagles out of a playoff win but yeah definitely would start one carson wentz patrick mahomes Yay, definitely. Easiest, one of the easiest choices here. Patrick Mahomes is the best quarterback in the NFL. Symbol's that. I think everybody would start their franchise with Patrick Mahomes. Patrick Mahomes is easily the best quarterback in the NFL, and I would start it right away. Aaron Rodgers. Yay. I think attitude-wise, Aaron Rodgers could be very frustrating, but I think talent-wise, there's not a lot of quarterbacks in the NFL history that are as talented as Aaron Rodgers. I would take Aaron Rodgers in a heartbeat. Aaron Rodgers... Though, again, his attitude problems are a little questionable at times, he's still one of the greatest quarterbacks in NFL history. Jimmy Garoppolo? Uh, I'm, I'm going to say nay. I think he's a good quarterback. I think he's a very good quarterback. I think he's very talented. But he doesn't do anything that wows you. He's a very good game manager. 
And he threw 27 touchdowns last year. It's very impressive stuff. But he threw six, 13 interceptions as well, which isn't bad. Like That's a good, decent touchdown-interception ratio. I like Jimmy Garoppolo, but I would not go out and start my franchise and draft him. I think he's a good quarterback, but that's not what I want to build my franchise around. Deshaun Watson, yay. I think he's a top-five quarterback in this league. There's not really a lot to discuss here. I love Deshaun Watson. Baker Mayfield, this is an interesting one because Baker divides opinions because of the fact that he had a really good rookie year and had a completely average and very, well, actually not even average, bad second year. So I'd say nay, just because of the inconsistency. You can't go from second in the rookie of the year voting to throwing 22 touchdowns and 21 interceptions while completing less than 60% of your pass the next year. I think Baker Mayfield will be back to his rookie year this year because I think there's just too much around to fail, but I would say no for Baker. Kyler Murray, another Oklahoma quarterback. Yay. I love Kyler Murray. Kyler Murray is one of my favorite quarterbacks in the NFL. 3,700 yards passing, 20 touchdowns, 12 picks. Very mobile quarterback. Very tough quarterback. I would take him in a heartbeat. Kirk Cousins. Um, See, Kirk's another one that's very underrated. I think Kirk is probably the most underrated quarterback in the NFL, if we're being 100% honest here. So I would say yay. I think he's way overpaid for what he his skill level is, but I think he's very underrated by a lot of NFL circles out there. I think I would I would be fine with Kirk Cousins. Now would replace would I replace him with Josh Allen? No. Or would I replace Josh Allen with him? No. But I would still think about starting because he's very underrated. Threw twenty six touchdowns, six interceptions, completed basically seventy percent of his passes. Not a lot to dislike about Kirk Cousins, really, other than the fact that he's Kirk Cousins, very corny. But that was about it. Ryan Fitzpatrick Nay, he's just old, and he's not a good franchise quarterback. He's a good uh, quarterback that will not tank you. I love Ryan Fitzpatrick, but I would not start a franchise built around him. Andy Dalton, nay. I think Andy Dalton's good. I think he's a fine quarterback, but I would definitely not start a franchise around him. I mean, that's why he's a backup now. I think Andy Dalton, I think he should still be in Cincinnati, whether it be a backup or start the first few weeks for Joe Burrow. I don't think there'd be a better mentor for Burrow than Andy Dalton. Because he even said, I'd be fine being a backup. I think Andy Dalton's got a great attitude, but I would not start a franchise around him. Kyle Allen, nay. I did not like him last year. I bashed him pretty much the entire show, and then when he became a backup, I was like, yeah, I told you so. I don't think he's that good. He was not ready to come to the NFL when he did, and then came to the NFL and looked like he wasn't ready to play in the NFL. So I'd say nay. Gardner Minshew, um, I don't know, because Gardner Minshew doesn't make a lot of mistakes, but he doesn't do a lot of things that wows you, other than, like, his off-the-field stuff. He doesn't have a strong arm. He's not big, but that's kind of what you like about him. He's an underdog. He was drafted in the sixth or seventh round, and he's using that as motivation. I think if he has a good year this year, that might persuade Jacksonville not to draft Trevor Lawrence. But if he doesn't, then they're going to have no no problem pulling the trigger on Trevor Lawrence. Personally, though, I would not start a franchise with Gardner Minshew. I like Gardner Minshew, but he does absolutely nothing that wows you on a football field. It makes you go, yes, this is the franchise guy, which is why they're constantly linked with Trevor Lawrence. I like him. I like him a lot, but I would not start a franchise with him. Mitchell Trubisky, nay. Um, Mitchell Trubisky cannot handle pressure he cannot handle hate that's not what i wanted a quarterback i want someone 
that can go in there, take criticism, and get better. I don't want someone going, shut off all the TVs in the practice facility. Because I don't want people to talk. I don't want my players to know that they're disliking me. That, yeah, no. That's just a big no for me. I don't think he's as terrible as everybody says he is. He's not good. I don't think he's terrible by any stretch of the imagination. Like, Adam Shine listed him the 32nd best quarterback in the NFL. I don't know about that, but I don't. he's not a franchise guy. Lamar Jackson, yay. Lamar Jackson led the league in touchdowns last year. Second ever unanimous MVP in NFL history. There's not, that's all I really need to say about him. Josh Allen, yay. Josh Allen has gotten better each year in the NFL. His first year in the league had one of the worst teams around him. A lot of people expected them to have a top two or three pick in the draft. Josh Allen's quarterbacks that he learned from as comparing to the other quarterbacks got drafted with him was Nathan Peterman and A.J. McCarron. You look at the other quarterbacks around him. Baker Mayfield and Tyrod Taylor. Sam Donald at Josh McCown and Teddy Bridgewater. Josh Rosen had Sam Darnold. Then you've got, and Mike Lennon, I think, was at, their, was at the Cardinals as well at the time. And then you had Lamar Jackson with Joe Flacco. Josh Allen and Nathan Peterman and A.J. McCarron. I can't think of two worse quarterbacks to learn from for Josh Allen than those two, especially Nathan Peterman. And Josh struggled when he first, because everybody knew going in the league, when he got drafted, this is the biggest project in the draft. And it showed the first year he played in the NFL. He struggled. Then he got hurt against the Texans, came back, balled out against the Jaguars, and then everybody started going, wow, this dude can actually play. This dude's a baller. Balls out against the the Dolphins every single time he plays them. Last season, Josh Allen, post the Patriots game where he threw threw three interceptions in a game, which they should have won, he threw two interceptions the remainder of the season. Now, he does do things that are very infuriating, like the, the lateral thing that he did against the Texans. That's just him wanting to win, trying to find a way to win. Ed Reed did that all the time in the NFL, trying to lateral, and it sometimes worked, sometimes didn't. But he still tried because he was trying to score a touchdown. Ed Reed was always trying to score. Josh, that was just a bad decision that he made. I think Josh is a very under... I saw a thing on Instagram that said, who's underrated or underrated quarterbacks, overrated quarterbacks? Josh Allen, overrated. Sam Darnold, underrated. Sam Darnold is the most overrated quarterback in the NFL. The most. Colin Coward's been on him ever since he came, before he even came in the league. Everybody's like, oh, Sam Darnold is the second best quarterback in this draft class. What makes you say that? Just because the talent around him is bad doesn't mean he's, we have to, if the talent was better than that means he'd be better. You don't know that. You don't. So don't say that. I don't know why everybody's on Sam Darnold all the time as his next great quarterback. I think he's good, but not better than Josh Allen by any stretch of the imagination. And speaking of Sam Darnold, he'll come to him pretty soon. Actually, we'll go to him now. Sam Darnold, um, nay, because of the fact of the ghost things. You don't want quarterbacks seeing ghosts. And I can't count him in always being there. He's been hurt a lot in his career. He's played 13 games in both years in the NFL. It's 26 total games. He's missed three games. The mono thing, I don't know if that was a huge deal. But the Jets, and with the Jets, everyone's like, oh, they were... They won this many games and finished 7-9 in the second half of the league. The, out of the entire NFL, their last half of the season was statistically the easiest schedule in the NFL. Right behind, right above the Cleveland Browns. So, number the easiest schedule the second half of the season was the Jets. Then it was the Browns. So, you want to look at those two teams and go like, oh yeah, they won this many games the second half of the season. 
Because it was the easiest schedule in the friggin' NFL. It wasn't anything Sam Darnold did differently. They were playing bum teams. They beat a Bills team that played their backups. And they barely beat them. Josh Allen played a drive, and then it was Matt Barkley the rest of the way. Zay, Isaiah McKenzie played corner that game. Like, you barely beat that team. Isaiah McKenzie, for those you who don't know, is a wide receiver. Sam Darnold is very overrated. I don't know who put him in the underrated category, who made that. He's the most overrated quarterback in the NFL. I think Sam Darnold has talent. I think he's tough when he's not out sick or something or hurt. I think he's big. I think he's strong enough to take hits. But I wouldn't take him over Josh Allen, definitely. Daniel Jones, um, no. because or, or nay, nay, nay. Because of the fact Daniel Jones fumbles all the time. He had 18 fumbles or something like that last year. There's nothing more infuriating to a head coach than fumbles. Ask any head coach out there. Any head coach. Daniel Jones fumbling 18 times. I don't care if he lost all of them, which he didn't, but I don't know if that number's accurate. I'm just looking at a screen with names on it. But still, that is the most infuriating thing for a coach. I don't care if he threw 24 touchdowns. I don't care if he threw for 3,000 yards. You don't fumble that many times in the season. That is not what we're doing here. There's a lot of coaches that that is their biggest pet peeve. And yeah, that for that reason, I'm out. <laughs> Drew Brees, just because he's old, nine or nay. Jacoby Brissett, nay. He completely capitulated the last half of the season last year. Started off hot, but then didn't do. He threw four touchdowns the last half of the season, if my my memory serves me right. Ryan Tannehill, nine, nay, whatever we've been doing, nay, yay, nay. (laughs) Ryan Tannehill, he's a solid quarterback, but I think he was just this good last year because it was a contract year. I think he's the next Ryan Fitzpatrick pretty much that's my opinion on him he's mobile he's tough um he's a decent leader but i think he'll perform best he's on a contract year and not really do anything after that we'll see how he does this year but i definitely would not start a franchise with ryan Tannehill. matthew stafford yeah yay because he's a very underrated quarterback he's been stuck in a terrible situation his entire career and he's on pace to have his best year in the nfl the lions are have a history of being terrible to their legendary players. Barry Sanders, Calvin Johnson before that. Or Calvin Johnson, then Barry Sanders before that. Whatever. I think Matthew Stafford is anywhere else. I think he'd be one of the top quarterbacks in the league. I feel bad for him sitting there in Detroit. Uh, Joe Flacco, though he's elite, I'm going to say nine or nay, whatever. I'm, I'm all confused on what I'm saying now. Joe Flacco, nay. He's old and he sucked last year. He sucked the last few years in the NFL. Mason Rudolph, big nay. Don't even need to talk. I think it's obvious why I don't like Mason Rudolph. Case Keenum, nay. Teddy Bridgewater, um, nay. I think he's a good bridge quarterback. Get it? Bridgewater, bridge quarterback. Yeah. I think he's a good quarterback, but I would not start a franchise. When there's one year in the NFL that he started, and it was a quote-unquote breakout year, he threw 14 touchdowns and nine picks. I mean, I'm not going to start a franchise with that. I think he's a good quarterback, but I think he's a very good bridge quarterback, and I think the Panthers will take a quarterback in the next year or two in my opinion. I think he's a good right-now quarterback. I don't know if I'd build my franchise around Teddy Bridgewater. Dwayne Haskins. I think Dwayne Haskins is all the talent in the world, but he's in the worst situation possible for a young quarterback. If he was anywhere else, I'd say yay. But the fact that he's in Washington is makes it hard. 
Washington right now is probably the worst team, like offensively in the NFL. They won't build their offensive line. They haven't gotten many weapons. Dwayne Haskins is set up to fail in Washington, which is sad because I think he's talented. But I don't know. It's hard for him to succeed right now. Marcus Mariota, nay, he's a backup. I think he'll eventually start in Las Vegas, but then they'll replace him eventually. Trade Derek Carr, Marcus Mariota start, then they draft a quarterback in a year or so. I don't know what they're going to do. Maybe Justin Fields comes in. But Mariota, Gruden likes him, but he hasn't developed. Every year is like, can this coach develop Mariota? It's year five. Now he's in year six. If he hasn't developed, this is just what he is. He's not developing further than what he is. Uh, Delvin Hodges, nay. Or Devlin Hodges, nay. He's a decent quarterback at best. He's not a franchise guy. He's not a starter he did decent things for the Steelers last year, but he's just nay. Eli Manning's retired, so nay. <laughs> Drew Locke, yay. I would definitely take Drew Locke. Drew Locke has everything you look for in the NFL. He has size. He has arm strength. He has the charisma. He has everything. Like That's what you look for with quarterbacks. He's decently mobile as well. I really like Drew Locke. I hate the fact that he's in Denver, though, because I hate the Broncos. But I really like Drew Locke. Yay for him. David Blow. Or Blau, however you pronounce it, nay. Don't need to explain it. Nick Foles, nay. He's a brilliant backup quarterback, but I would not start a franchise with Nick Foles. Not in a million years would I ever start a franchise with Nick Foles. And, yeah. So, with that being said, I'm going to end the show here. I had one other thing that I wanted to talk about, but I'm going to save that for Wednesday. We have top 10 quarterbacks under 25. I'm going to save that for Wednesday because I – I don't want to go really long today. I mean, we're about an hour right now, if not an hour. So we'll just end it here. And I think the show went really well today. And yeah, I will see you all on Wednesday. Peace.